Welcome to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. For this episode, we are at the Quality Matters Annual Conference, the ninth QM Connect. My name is Stephen Crawford, and I'm the Associate Director for Academic Innovation. And today I have with me... Hello, my name is Eddie Andreu. I'm the Associate Vice President for Distance Learning at Cowley College in Kansas. Thank you, Eddie, for joining us. Uh, we have just finished the conference. We've been here since Sunday, and I know we've had a number of pre-conference workshops and a number of sessions throughout the time. What are some of your takeaways that you really enjoy that you think others would like to know about and could act on? I think there was a lot of great learning with uh, instructors working with instructional designers. And like we talked about last year, um, trying to build that bridge between designers and instructors. So working together and determining exactly what a designer does and how they can help a faculty member. You know, and that's something that my team has been talking about in, in previous episodes. We talked about the idea of teamness. And, and one of the things that we did was we co-presented a session on how to build a interprofessional team and to establish some of those relationships to understand who can help where in the art of the course design and how to build it. So what were some of your takeaways from that session? Well, that session was really fun. And I think we've, we've gathered a ton of information about exactly what we can expect from both the ID and the faculty side. But I think what was interesting was we saw a lot of faculty that were really doing their own thing as far as design um, and not realizing that there was more resources available to them. So this was kind of a chance to open their eyes um, if they had designers on campus and to be able to ask those questions and uh, seek out those particular resources if they were available. You know, and I think an interesting point that I want to uh, tap into is Ron Lagan, the uh, former executive director of Quality Matters. Um, in his retirement, he's working on a lot of research. He highlighted how a lot of online programs, the large ones, and he considered, you know, the research considers large online programs, any program with more than 2,500 students. They don't have many instructional designers in many cases. We're talking as few as, well, I think on average, I think it was 14 was what the preliminary findings were in the most recent study. And why 14 instructional designers sound like a lot most of them were working on average with four or more programs at any given time. Now, in my college, every faculty member, has, regardless of teaching modality, has access to an instructional designer. What is the situation at your college? Sure. And what you're referring to is the Chloe survey. I think that was a ton of great data um, that Ron had provided. And at our institution, it's a much smaller uh, makeup of IDs, even though we have more than 50% of our enrollment is fully online. There's only really, um, there's three of us. I have an LMS admin, a director of instructional technology, and then myself, I handle um, more the administrative side of things, which is um, more at the, the associate vice president level uh, or associate vice provost. So for almost 300 faculty members, I think my, my instructional design department's rather small, but that's pretty, um, pretty accurate and pretty similar to most other institutions that are out there of my size. Um, I, I would love to see more, uh, more individuals added to my team. I think we could use it, but there's, there's going to have to be that justification on being able to explain how, even though there's three of us, we all have our own little, um, subsets. And right now my director of instructional design 
leads uh, working with faculty one-on-one and right the model is he's working with almost 300 faculty on his own wow that's a lot it is it is and i think we need to try and get away from that because we're we're spread a little too thin and these these conferences are starting to really um, open the eyes of many of the um, upper admin and and most of the administration to realize, okay, there's really a need, and there, the 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 position of an instructional designer is very valuable and important to support faculty and the development of their online courses. And I remember in this session, several faculty were talking about how essentially they don't have the opportunity to work with instructional designers. So for those of you who do have access to an instructional designer that you enjoy working with, go give them a hug. Um, talking about that, one that you did another session with uh, Penny Ralston-Berg, who is also the Quality Matters Instructional Design Association president. What was that session about? That session really focused on um, what an instructional designer can do for you and getting the most out of your instructional designer. So laying out, again, what, what can that designer do as far as media, um, design with the, within the LMS, even thinking outside of the LMS, because some institutions use third-party products. Um, we try and do our best to use products that are free and that are available to um, any of our instructors to try and expand on the way that they teach and make their courses more engaging. So we're always looking for those products, especially the free products, and then sharing that with our faculty members. So that session really laid out um, what someone in IT to instructional design to faculty to administration, we listed out those things and we were able to garner a lot of great feedback from the participants and the conversations were extremely, extremely helpful. Now you had a metaphor that you used in that session. The house metaphor, right? Yes. All right. So um, at my institution, when I'm working with my faculty members, especially our new faculty, we talk about... um, the instructional design department being the contractor or the builder of your home. So we're there to help you set the foundation and build the um, build the, the framework of a home and put the electric and the plumbing in the right places. And that's when we bring in the faculty members and work together with them to understand what colors do they want their walls, what type of furniture do they want, where do we put, um, what type of front door, not necessarily where you put the front door, but what color, what type of uh, painting, those type of things, the shingles. And that allows us to work together in building a, a quality on online course. And that's uh, that's been a really good analogy for us to help instructors realize the value of, of an instructional design department. Now, I'll tell you, one of the things that I really enjoyed at the conference that I want to talk about a little bit is our opening keynote. Um, Todd, are you going to pronounce his last name or should I attempt it? I think it? You, should, you should attempt it. I just right. call him Todd. I'm going to butcher it and say Zarkashian. I'm done. <laughs> but Todd from UNC Chapel Hill, um, he gave a dynamic keynote and the very first takeaway that I thought was really interesting and made me very happy was him to say lecturing is not bad. Lectures are not the problem in education. It's the fact that we're not giving good lectures and that we're not keeping our students interested in. And he had some really interesting metaphors about hiking through the woods and you get to a big tree and you see a group, you know, you make a path around a tree and then it goes nowhere. And then you come back and then someone sees that path you made. And then sooner or later it becomes grooved and it's a path to nowhere. 
and we have to watch out for those. And I think that's something very big right now in education because we're all getting inundated with how horrible lectures are, but still it's the easiest way to trans transmit information today. It's how we lecture. And so what were some of your thoughts on that? You know, Todd made it very clear that even though lectures right now, everyone is trying to trying to go away from or move away from lectures, but there's still value in it because if you can make a lecture interactive, that is value. And um, the, the other value is in the knowledge coming from the faculty member. Um, one of the thing, one of the big takeaways that I took from him too was when he said that without teachers, we really wouldn't have any other um, any other positions, jobs, careers out there. So yeah, all I think it was all other professions come from teaching. That's exactly right. So um, his he, he's really kept an open mind for the traditional side of teaching, yet still understands there's way to enhance that level of teaching, even though it's still more traditional. You know, and I think one of the things that, I mean, he didn't get into this explicitly, but I think one of the things when you think about lecturing is the, the biggest problem with lectures is they're, they're often the 50 minute lecture or hour and a half lecture that we're used to because of classroom scheduling. And you know, and, and from my session that I, I did as a pre-conference workshop, we, we showed data that shows in that situation, most students only remember two things. And it's whatever you talked about in the first 10 minutes and whatever you talked about in the last 10 minutes at best. So, yeah. I mean, one, of, one of the things that I've um, instructed my or at least helped my faculty members understand that, again, you can lecture and that's fine, but you've got to chunk those out. And um at maximum 10 minutes, we actually encourage trying to keep uh, lectures uh, down to five minutes, seven minutes max. But after you do a five minute lecture, then you have some sort of engagement, like an assessment or an assignment or some type of opportunity for the students to then um, be be engaged in that conversation that they've just heard. And that is kind of that, that subtle reminder that allows them to remember, okay, we just talked about that. Here's the reaffirmation of what we just talked about. So it's almost uh, bringing, bringing students back on point after listening to a lecture, still utilizing lectures, but then um, engaging them in an activity that reminds them of what they just discussed. And, and I think something that was very interesting in the keynote is he talked learning theory without boring people. And he talked one of my favorite ones, cognitive load theory. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, competing with distracted students or people in general, let's just not blame students, distracted people. And, yeah. and we talk about, and I love this example with the cell phones. Um, you know, you, you know, you, he said you could tell this person's tell that they weren't paying attention because they'd have their cell phone, you'd ask them questions and they respond and they're going through their phone and they'd respond and they're going through their phone and the responses then become, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh yep, uh-huh, uh-huh. And they have no idea what you said. And I think that's a really interesting challenge that we have when it comes to everything that's going on. Cognitive load, we often, again, we blame it on our devices, but it comes from other sources as well. Yeah. In that, 
that takes us back to devices in the classroom. You know, do we still continue to use devices and or allow students to use devices in the classroom or not? I think you continue to allow them, um, but you have to engage them through that device, whether it's through Kahoot or Poll Anywhere or any of these other ones that you they can quickly use on their devices so that they're active and they're still truly actively learning. So um, there's challenges there because you can the studies all show that students and even adults that have some sort of device they can't multitask it's it's virtually impossible for most if not all and yeah. it's hard to keep that that focus so and one of the other things i remember him saying was that this current generation is no better or worse than the previous generation when it comes to so-called multitasking. Mm -hmm. Me being an old IT person from back in the day with Windows 3.1, I remember they didn't call it multitasking back then. They called it time slicing. And, and that's how I've always envisioned it. Your attention is focused on something briefly and then it shifts to something else and forgets what you were looking at until you bring your attention back to it. So yeah. I've always, that concept of time slicing has always been in my mind mm -hmm. and, and I, I just wanted to to shout it out during the keynote going, what about time slicing? Right. And I wish I would have caught up with them later and had that conversation. Well, I think if we can, we can acknowledge that there's, that is a challenge for most of us, then we're better off. I have a, a really close colleague that has made it very clear to me that if his phone is in his face and he has, is touching the screen and scrolling, I can't have a conversation with that person. And anything that's important, I will not address with him until he has put that down and we can have that conversation. And he's very aware of it and has made it very clear. So um, we ha I think we need to be self-aware that we have our limitations in, in multitasking. You know, and I also think we, we, we blame devices for a lot of things when it comes to cognitive load and distractions. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, th I always go back to Maslow's a hierarchy of needs. If a student is worried about a family member who's sick, they're not going to pay attention in class. If they're worried about getting to their job on time, they're not going to pay attention in class. If they're taking a course online and their kid has a soccer game or is sick, odds are that's going to take, take precedence over the online course. And I think there's something to be thought about as well as being mindful of what's going on in our students' lives that are comp is competing for their attention, not just the devices. Absolutely. Um, a good example of that is a student that hasn't eaten that morning, and that's why it's so important to try and have a good breakfast because you can actually stay focused. But there's all the, there are students that don't have the opportunity to have breakfast, and we, we need to really be cognizant of those students that don't even have the funds to be able to eat. So they're trying to go to school and trying to focus, and that's a struggle for them. So it's not just the devices, it's various factors that could be going on. Yeah, to wrap up that point, I had a friend who um, teaches in the K-12 environment, and on average, their worst discipline days were Mondays because yeah. students would go home on a Friday and their last meal would have been on Friday at lunch and they don't get another meal again until Monday. So, or they get very little food over the weekend and then, yeah, come Tuesday and Wednesday, they're fine because mm -hmm. they've re-leveled out. But yeah. Monday, they're so out of whack on their levels that until they get food in them, they're, that, that's all, that's their only opportunity because of how their situation is. It's horrible that we still have that today. I know. 
Well, let's move from that somehow. Uh, I know there's no easy transition. One of the things that I know a number of people discovered in this conference and, and, and a number of us are have experienced ex exposed to it before is design thinking. And we, in fact, on the way up here to record, we ran into someone who was leaving uh, the conference who was talking about their design thinking workshop that they attended. Did you hear much about that one or anything about that? I didn't hear about it. I didn't get to attend that one. So I'm not real familiar with that episode um, here at the conference, but I know you had some familiarity with it and some background. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've worked with design thinking before and I wasn't in on the session, but they did some activities where I know they were building some, some items and apparently the whole experience was just so rewarding for some people to see it as a way to think and how to approach a problem that they they were very possessive and loved what they had built in that session with you know and it's one of those things you're playing with clay and you're building a little a little object to solve a problem and in from a presenter standpoint, you're like, yeah, we build it. It's a throwaway. Who cares? But a lot of times the, the participants, they're like, oh, I want to keep that. And so design thinking is something that is definitely been a hot topic in education, especially higher education. Well, K-12 and, and higher ed both lately. So um, I suspect we'll hear a lot more about that in the near future. I did attend an, another session that had some uh, little bendy guys in the, you know, the, the, uh, the pipe cleaner straws. And um, during that session, it was about, you know, working with that individual that's um, maybe more of a challenge and uh, what, what you can do to try and build those connections and work, um, work you know, in a one-on-one -on -one setting. And one of the participants or two of the participants actually got together with the two bendy guys and with the straws and they built a bridge between the two the the two bendy guys, which I thought was really creative and and trying to build those bridges and work together, um, whether it's IDs or ID and faculty or even within the faculty department. So I think it's not I think the conversation this year wasn't just about um IDs and faculty, I think it goes beyond that. I think there's um, there there's opportunities that the faculty can work with each other as well, because sometimes we're, they're so closed in, in that thinking that um, maybe we they've missed that opportunity to work with others that still teach the same discipline and um, hopefully working with those um, those each other's ideas to build something that's even better. Um, I know a lot of our departments on my campus work very closely together and we've built those relationships um, even from from full-time faculty to adjuncts try and build master courses together we have a again like a think tank where they they are all um, part of it, they have buy-in, and they work together to build this really amazing course. And everybody has been involved in it, so it's not just a matter of one person building something and then it's farmed out to everybody. Everybody gets that to be involved in it. So it's one way that we're working, especially at a smaller institution, we can do that. You know, and as you were talking about that and different faculty working together, it reminded me of Steve Kaufman's session on uh, the gamification of uh, faculty development. That and, was outstanding. I mean, it was a brilliant, simple way. You know, we've talked about badges before in this podcast. We've, you know, it's like, how can we bring badging to different things? Does it have a place? And he has a great, brilliant way of doing it that's so and inexpensive so simple, and simple. So simple. I mean, and he's having his faculty um, go through 30 hours of training and they love it. Yeah. 
And then they, and, and one of the things that he does is every faculty member, when they come to their first session, they get the table tent with their name on it. Very standard thing. You know, we go to the Avery templates and print them out. But what he also does behind the scenes is he is um, going again to the Avery templates and he is printing his own badges that he's developed for all sorts of different topics. Um, and, and he gives them out during the session. So you end up with a table tent with many, many stickers. And he ended up bringing a handful of those. And it was made very clear to him, I better get it back because these become prized items that faculty keep in their offices because it almost becomes, again, it becomes a game yeah. of who has the most badges, yeah. who has the, who can you catch them all? Uh -huh. um, yeah. And I, I just, it was great. Yeah. And it's, it, it's easy. It was very easy. He, he stepped us through the entire process and provided us with exactly what he does. And I think, I think as long as you can get, um, your faculty to buy into that and just have that opportunity and or offer the opportunity and show them what the value is. I think we all like to get badges and trinkets and, and, and anything as rewards. Yeah. I mean, I know we say often, Oh, I don't need that. But once you have a bunch of them, you kind of, you kind of want more. Yeah, we do. You do. And that takes me back to Penny and I's um, session where we handed out some little tiny maracas and some little clappers and things like that. Not only was it great that they, we had some little giveaways, but after somebody had said something that was of value, their colleagues would clap and shake and make noise, which was kind of a, a reaffirmation of what, um, what they've provided and shared. And, you know, you're getting great feedback and almost like a, a badge, um, a, a pat on the back from, from your colleagues. And I'm willing to bet getting that first person was difficult. And I'm thinking of, is it Simon Simic who says, you know, the, the true leader is not the one who stands up first, but it's the first follower? That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, one of the things that Steve talked about also in a session, and I thought about Celia, Jeanette, and Aaron, who are normally part of this podcast they have a badge for the learning systems um, that they use at their institution, their grade book. Mm. And their grade book, surprise, breaks like so many other people's grade books do, especially during a course copy when, um, you know, all the assignments or things change or don't change, et cetera. And one of the things you do to get your grade book badge is that in the workshop, you're given a broken grade book and you are to, to repair it obviously with support in the room to help you work through the problem, but you learn to repair a grade book on your own so that you don't have to always visit an instructional designer or somebody else every single time that you have a broken grade book, you start to learn more. And I thought that was a really neat way to approach it. That's outstanding because you're really teaching them how to fish and giving them the examples of here's what could go wrong and here's how you can fix it or give, you give them that opportunity to be able to try and resolve it on their own. Um, I think that's a good thing. I think there's, there's a balance between having your ID do everything for you and then having your ID show you so that way the next time that that happens, you can quickly resolve it. Um, and that's more efficient. That's, a, that's more efficient thinking and, um, and producing. So, um, yeah, I think it's a great way of handling it. Now, also as a disclaimer, Eddie and I both were on the program planning committee for this conference, and we're watching the beautiful rain here hit the garden outside the window here in Fort Worth. 
And one of the things that um, I think was interesting was we, we get some background information of what's going on. This has become a truly international conference. We have a good representation of institutions across the country of a variety of types. We have K-12 who are using the K-12 rubric. We have community colleges. We have public institutions, private institutions, for-profit institutions. I mean, we have the whole spectrum of, of higher education and education in general here. And I want to think they said that we were running about one-third instructional designers, one-third administrators, and one-third faculty here. Yeah, that so, sounds about right. I mean, that's that's a really interesting mix of people to come together and talk about course quality. And, you know, it's one of those things that we think about, it, where is this program quality matters going? And, you know, one of the conversations I had during one of my sessions was how can we use the quality matters rubric to improve face-to-face -face courses? We know that a lot of these principles that we talk about often, aligning learning objectives with assessments, that, that should be done for all courses, not just online courses. And just go down the, the, the list. But my session was exploring what evidence would you look for in a face-to-face -face course so you're not reviewing course delivery, you're actually reviewing course design. So we've got some work to do in that area. And that's something that Quality Matters themselves is not doing. It's something that I'm doing. But I, you know, I think that's something that you're going to see a lot of people are using this rubric in lots of education areas. We also know that things are changing as always. We heard a little bit more about the program uh, uh, reviews that are being done where we've seen a number of institutions who have had a lot of QM reviews. And um, I mean, has yours had any QM reviews lately? Um, we've had probably about a handful. Okay. Um, so we're... we're we did a lot of the front-end training of our faculty when we did our LMS migration about three years ago. Had all of our track faculty trained in APPQMR, then we started designating um, peer reviewers within the departments. And um, we started um, certifying an entire program, so we're following a program um, line in certifying those. And that development process is taking some time, but we're, we're definitely getting there in, in the in the process of building the entire program course by course and then pushing them through the certification process. So are you thinking about doing the program reviews as well? I, you know, I'm not sure. We've done a great job of, of doing one by one. Um, so I, I need to find out more about the value of the program reviews. Yeah, we had a couple of our larger institutions. One of the things that we found out here, and, and we've heard these stories before, is several institutions have decided that every single one of their online courses will meet QM expectations, and every single one will go through a, a Quality Matters course review process. And I mean, that's that's a lot of time, a lot, a lot of effort. That's That's not a simple task. And even though they're doing that, they're still looking for more of the show how how good these programs are, what, how high the level of quality is. And I know that, that there are, are multiple dimensions of the program review process. One focuses on student services. One, I, I don't remember them all off the top of my head, unfortunately. But there are, you know, it, it's something very interesting that I think uh, more institutions will be looking at as they're starting to look at not just how can my online courses be of a high quality, but how can my online program be of a high quality. Sure. Anything else that you kind of, from the conference that you want to talk about that kind of stuck in your mind? No, I was surprised at how many newcomers um, were here. I was trying to think back at uh, what the program committee said as far as how many newcomers. It yeah, was I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head. Um, but there was, uh, that was really great to see. A lot of good newcomers. Um, so that tells me that there's becoming more widespread buy-in. 
um, but also those that, that are able to attend in addition to our admins. We saw a lot more admins than we normally see with, um, we normally see more just faculty and IDs split. Um, so I'm glad to see that. I think it's, um, I think QM started a while ago to really help focus um, and provide support for IDs and then having the IDs work with faculty. But now I think there's a, a great um, transition from your IDs to faculty to all the way up to the administration. So we're going to get buy-in across the institution. I think that is so critical, um, especially with some of the concerns that are coming out at some of the institutions right now in uh, building academic quality and rigor. And I think we're going to be really um, in charge of helping establish that, um, especially for you know institutions like mine that are under Higher Learning Commission, and um, those those expectations are going to be really high. And so I I, I can't say enough about how well this conference went and uh, the collaboration, the feedback, the the new. You know, new people. I know I met you during my first uh, first attendance at the Tucson QM conference, oh, yes. and, and we're we're still talking to today, presenting, and I think that's what it's about. It's you, when you attend these conferences, it's not just a, just about attending the sessions, but you're really building relationships and collaborating with people that are doing the same things and experiencing some of the same challenges. So being able to share out and work together, I think is invaluable. So I'm glad I'm here. I'll be back next year and, and uh, looking forward to the, the upcoming years. So, so before we close things out, in case we have listeners who aren't familiar with Quality Matters, how would you describe that to them? Ah, well, Quality Matters is... Uh, it's a way to create quality online courses um, through a, a, an established, proven, research-based rubric. And it helps guide an instructor, peer, uh, the peer review teams, um, and the IDs in building courses to establish a very um, structured, uh, rigorous, quality course in the online and hybrid settings. And I'd add to that that the peer review team, this is a faculty-centered process, so the peer review team is experienced online faculty. And so this is kind of like having your course reviewed like you would have a, a research article reviewed for a journal. So this is a great opportunity to kind of have your peers certify you as providing a, a quality product, for lack of a better term, for your students. And I would also add that you know this QM rubric it's been around for a while. Um, it's been around. For, it's been around for about 14 years, mm -hmm. and a new revision is being worked on now. That we're both familiar with that process, and it's a very evidence-based. It's on the current research, its best practices, and accreditation standards that we can find, and and it's it's well informed. And I think it's a very informative tool. Um, with that being said, um, if you would like to learn more about Quality Matters, if you're new to the program, please visit their website, qualitymatters.org. The next conference will be at the end of October, beginning in November of 2018 in St. Louis, Missouri. So if you are interested in attending that, please get on the website. And if your institution is a member, please uh Come and visit us. And if you're not, if your institution's not a member, be one of the 31, I think was the number we were heard told last night, of people who aren't subscribers, but we're here to consider it. We'd love to have you here and would love to talk to you. 
want to thank Eddie for joining us today. This has been Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. I want to thank Ricardo, who will be editing this audio here shortly, and I hope the noise from the background is not too bad. We did our best to find a quiet place here in the conference, but now it's pouring the rain outside the window. So thank you. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an in instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. And want to thank Ricardo, who is not here, but is in our hearts and minds, and will be editing this video and hopefully video. <laughs> Let me try that again. There's there there's the there's the flub that he's going to put at the end of the uh, podcast. He always does that to us, which is usually quite hilarious. So, so want to thank you for listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. Uh, if you want to, I have what was I saying now? I was on it, now I'm off it. All right, anyway.